James chapter 2. We're continuing this morning in our series we're calling Humble Faith, going through the letter of James. Uh, Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. This is James 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, this ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, uh, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us, make us holy by the truth. And your Word is truth. Show us Christ and His grace in this passage. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us Conform us into the image of our Savior Jesus through your grace. We ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. The best way to introduce uh, this sermon and this passage is to jump straight into the problem that James addresses. Uh, I think that will help us understand why we should care about this topic at a quarter to 11 on a Sunday morning. Uh, If I could capture the problem in just a few words, we could say that sometimes fish don't know they're wet. Cultural assumptions and attitudes um, are just the air we breathe, and we don't even know we're breathing it. And the gospel comes in and blows that up with the glory of Jesus and the good way in which he's called us to walk as believers in him. So let's jump into this problem James addresses. Uh, There's a lot to consider here, and then we'll look at three truths that should inform and guide how we treat others. We just read it, but refer here to uh, verses 1 through 4 as we explore what James is talking about. I'm going to get into some cultural background that I think will help us understand uh, and make this really even more searching and relevant for us. So two things to point out. First of all, let's think about where this scenario is playing out in the first place. There are actually a couple of options. Is this favoritism and discrimination in the worship service, or is it something else? We probably naturally assume it was the worship service. Uh, The word the ESV translates as assembly is the word synagogue. 
That's interesting, because if James is referring here to what we do on a Sunday morning, and if he's referring to the local church, uh, then this is the only place in the New Testament where that word is used to describe uh, the local church assembly. And later in James, he does use the word that's more commonly used for church. It's possible, since we've talked about this letter being one of the earliest written letters in the New Testament, that these words were interchangeable at this point. So it's possible. It could be that he's referring to what we do uh, every Sunday morning as we gather to worship. On the other hand, there are some compelling reasons to think that it might be understood as a church court, a church court where problems and disputes among church members were solved. In that case, what James is addressing here would be a profound injustice and this preferring and discriminating even in the courts of the church. The word synagogue, the comment about the rich being those who drag the Christians into court, uh, and how James addresses these injustices later in the letter indicate that's a possibility. It's, an, it, it's interesting, I think, at least to consider uh, the possibilities um, for what, where this is happening. I'm not sure we have to decide between the two options, uh, but it certainly would make this passage relevant beyond just the local Sunday morning worship service. It would be a warning and a rebuke against injustice, church decisions that prefer someone for their status or their wealth or their power over against the poor and the helpless seeking justice. It's pretty clear James has Leviticus 19 in view, which um, Eric read just a few moments ago. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, those are the options before us. As I said, I don't know that we have to choose between them. But what is happening, whether it's in the church assembly or in the church courts, there's this partiality, this discrimination that's happening. Uh, but secondly, let's think about the root of what's happening. What's at root here? What's happening in this scenario? Uh, well, James, having just explained that true religion uh, regards the helpless, the hopeless, the widow, and the orphan, and keeps oneself unstained from the world, uh, he then goes from that concept to a concrete example. He doesn't leave us in the abstract. He addresses a specific problem. James goes here not because he was reading a book of sermon illustrations and this one seemed to fit. No, this is something that was going on in the congregations to which he writes. The example itself, I think we could say, is hyperbole. That's probably uh, pretty clear. It's this ostentatious picture of this rich man walking in in his fine robes and his golden ring, and then this really poor man uh, in his dirty, shabby clothes. Uh, but the attitude which he's addressing, which James is addressing, is no hyperbole at all. This is a real problem in the church. And it might be helpful first to recognize that the words rich and poor, uh, they have a context. They're specific to the culture that James is writing to. I found this explanation by the late biblical scholar Bruce Molina helpful. He says it's not necessarily about wealth, but about status. And in an honor-shame culture, such as the one James is ministering to, uh, being classified as poor, writes Molina, was the result of some unfortunate turn of events or some untoward circumstances. Poor persons seem to be those who cannot maintain their inherited status due to the circumstances that befell them and their families, such as debt, being in a foreign land, sickness, death of a spouse, or some personal physical accident. For example, widows and orphans and their distress. 
right? So as a category, it's not necessarily the poor day laborer or the beggar or the peasant, but someone who has been demoted by fate, all right? Providence, okay? We don't have potlucks as Presbyterians. We have pot providences, okay? So they've been demoted by fate in the culture. Uh, This ill-fated, socially ill-fated is another way to describe this. Some have become widows and orphans. The rich, on the other hand, are not the only uh, they're not only the ones who deserve this status because they're rich, it's because they've gotten ahead. Now, maybe they've done so by ill-gotten greed and by manipulation and defrauding their laborers. James is going to address that. But in this culture, if you've gotten ahead, you are blessed by the gods. Fate has smiled upon you. So that's the concept here. This, these people have prospered, and these people have not. It's not necessarily along the lines of, of money and dollar signs. You might be wondering at this point, yeah, but this is in the church. Surely this wouldn't be happening in the church. Surely people have changed their views, and they've uh, followed Jesus, and they've had their cultural uh, preconceived notions rearranged by the gospel. Well, it doesn't always happen so easily, does it? That's not always so easy. David De Silva makes a great point uh, on this. He says, Jesus, James, and Paul, and most New Testament voices take the time to clarify the true basis for honor and to correct intrusions of dominant culture or of Jewish subcultural ways of attaining or asserting honor. In other words, fish don't know they're wet. Sometimes the apostles then and pastors now have to point out that we don't even know the air we're breathing. We have to point out ways that we haven't quite shaken the values and the norms and the assumptions that we live and breathe every day, whether it's in the first century or in the 21st century. In this way, there are implications for this passage that reach far beyond uh, how do you treat the wealthy and the poor, even in the first century you know, notion that we just talked about. These are early Christians, and, and they have yet to come to grips with how the Lord Jesus, uh, the Lord of glory, will rearrange everything about the way they think and interact with their neighbor. The paradigms that we're used to need to shift if we're going to live according to the wisdom from above, as James writes. So, a question for you. How might the cultural and subcultural influences out of which we've been called into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, how might those cultural or subcultural influences from your past or even from our surroundings uh, influence how we view uh, status and honor and respectability, even after the gospel has given us new hearts? Maybe your paradigm for honor and shame fell along the lines of being on the right side of politics and policies. That was your worldview. That was your everything. Maybe that was a major defining mark for who's in and who's out. Practically a religion unto itself. Maybe it fell along the lines of race and ethnicity and assumptions based on how someone looks. The word translated uh, partiality in James 2, I mentioned to the children a minute ago, it could be translated as accepting faces looking at how someone looks and accepting or rejecting them based on that, any number of things about their appearance. Or maybe your paradigm for honor and shame fell along the lines of apparent success in one's career uh, and apparent failure. That gets pretty close to home, I think, to what James is addressing in these churches that he's writing to. You see, while we're tempted to evaluate others and categorize others and treat others according to the paradigms we've swam in and we've breathed in for so long, The gospel and what Jesus has done and what he commands us to do changes all of that. 
I think that's how we can see why this is relevant to us. You might read this and say, I really don't care if somebody walks in the room with a giant signet ring, right? But we see here that he's addressing how the gospel has to change everything about how we interact with others, about how we see the world, and about how we follow Jesus. That's the big idea. And I want you to think about three things in James um, that really, in this rebuke to the original readers, uh, that reveals our own blind spots. Three things. Three things that help us to see life through the lens of the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at how Jesus reframes how we regard others because of who he is, because of what he's done, and what he calls us to do. So let's look first at who Jesus is. Consider with me the Lord of glory. Consider the glory of Jesus. So James begins this withering but also encouraging critique here of the sin of partiality, of favoritism, discrimination according to the world's way of thinking. And he does this by calling our attention in verse 1 to, look there with me, James 2.1, he calls our attention to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Ralph Martin captures this really well in his commentary. He says, the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is one of the noblest titles accorded to the church's head in the New Testament. Aside from the ascription of lordship, the adjectival of glory is to be given full weight. As a frontispiece to this tale of two visitors to the assembly, James builds up an impressive picture of the glorious Lord. I think this line in James, aside from the gospel of true humility, which we've been going back to week after week, I think this really ought to close the debate about just how Christocentric, just how Christ-centered the letter of James is. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James exudes the teaching of Jesus in virtually everything he writes, but he points to the glory of Jesus here as his opening salvo against our old way of thinking and acting and regarding others. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus stands in the midst of his church, wherever his church meets, among whoever enters those doors. John describes him in Revelation 1. He describes Jesus as one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And you're impressed by a man who walks in wearing a gold ring? Worldly status and honor compared to this, compared to the glory of Jesus? I think that's something we ought to think about here. Worldly wisdom and bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's the cultural air these Christians are breathing, and I think we breathe pretty much the same thing in our culture. But Jesus in his life and his sacrifice for us exemplifies the wisdom from above. The very humility of Jesus was his path back to the glory which he had with his Father from the beginning. Philippians 2, 1 and following. Just listen to the humiliation and the glory of Jesus. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Returning again here to Ralph Martin, because I think he's so helpful on this point about Jesus' glory. He talks about the glory of Jesus in the context of James' rebuke. He says, No reader of the gospel story could fail to see some connection. The Lord of glory once entered on the human scene and came not as might be expected in all the regalia of might and majesty, but in the lowly garments of a beggar and was refused. While the point is not made explicitly, James may well be preparing the ground for what is to follow. Namely, in refusing to, to see the divine image in one's neighbor, according to the royal law, however disguised and overlaid it is, it may be that one is failing to see the Lord himself, who laid his glory aside and chose to identify with the least of these his brothers. Not only has Jesus exemplified in the most incredible way, this humility, uh, this wisdom from above that is humble and peaceable and righteous. Not only did he take on the form of a servant uh, and minister throughout his life to those whom the world and apparently uh, these first readers of James, these believers in the church, and often we ourselves, uh, people we regard as shameful, the blind, the lame, the widow, the beggar, the poor, the sinner. Uh, not only did Jesus do all that, he at the same time is the Lord of glory. He's the definition of glory. So as we consider who Jesus is and we consider the glory of Jesus, uh, the gap, when we look at this glory of Jesus, the gap between those whom we say deserve honor and those who don't, it closes. Because there is an infinite, infinite gap between all of us and our exalted Lord of glory who has saved us. It levels us before Jesus it levels the playing field. He is high above all, and all of us are in need of what only He can provide. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, Paul writes, Galatians 3, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just how these disparities in the first century and the 21st century of honor and shame are leveled. Yes, men and women still exist. Yes, ethnicities still exist. But you are all one in Christ. And that's what counts. So that's the first thing. Jesus reframes how we regard others because of who he is. We have to consider the glory of Jesus. Secondly, consider what Jesus has done. Consider with me the grace of the gospel. Look with me at James 2, 5-7. We've already dipped our toes into the waters of the gospel, but look again here at 2, 5-7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It's interesting, I think, that Jesus, well, that James begins with who Jesus is. He's the Lord of glory. And then after that, he moves on to what Jesus has done. He leads us to consider the gospel. In order to combat this faulty ethic, this wrong-headed way of regarding others, it reminds me of Paul to Peter uh, in Galatians 2. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth, he doesn't say of the law, the truth of the gospel. So here James goes to who Jesus is first, and then he goes to the gospel. And only then does James take us to the law. We get that backwards sometimes, don't we? So often we get that backwards. We look first at what we're told to do. What am I supposed to do? When first we should be looking at what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? The gospel motivates our holiness. It compels us to holiness in a very different way than the law. Uh, In fact, I would say that even though the law defines true religion, love God, love others, considering or regarding the widow and the orphan in their distress, keeping oneself unstained from the world, love God, love others, I think that's law. Only the gospel can make that track or make that train run down the track of holiness. Only the gospel can make that train run down the track of holiness. I was talking with Kevin about this analogy because no one loves a good train analogy more than Kevin. And he, he told me, please use a quilting analogy instead. Lynn would appreciate that. So there have been way, way too many trains on their trip. So the law, the law, that's the quilting pattern. That's the pattern for the quilt. But you're not going to have a quilt without a quilting machine with a good motor. The gospel is the motor. My mom makes quilts for all of her grandkids, so I think I'm on track with the analogy. Um, There's no engine in the law. Without the gospel changing our hearts, our lives will not run down that track. Only the good news can get our lives on toward obedience. Well, how does considering then the grace of the gospel combat favoritism and discrimination? Particularly discrimination in this context of James between uh, those who are self-ambitious and wealthy and those who are perhaps the ill-fated poor, at least culturally speaking. Well, God turns that culture's values on its head. He often does. And he extends his grace to the ones the culture despises. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That was a shocker in the first century. And it's still a shocker now, isn't it? That God would choose us those who one would think would never be reached by the gospel, uh, those who would never catch a break, those who uh, didn't have a prayer, those are the ones that Jesus reaches out and saves. He's reached out to the people like that with the good news of grace. It's not that the rich are never saved. I think speaking globally, that would be bad news for most of us. But the gospel turns worldly values on their heads and it lifts up the humble in spirit and those who have no help and no hope. The coming king of glory was announced to poor shepherds uh, born of a virgin. Uh, He was laid in a cattle feeding trough. The angelic choir didn't show up in the palace. It showed up in the fields with the poor and despised. They went running with joy to see the newborn savior. The wealth that Jesus brought to the poor and disadvantaged and sick and dying and condemned by sin and death, doesn't that just make the world's riches and wealth pale in comparison 
the riches that we've received? Did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's what James says. And here I think what's more, James makes this aside from the gospel, uh, and he just appeals to common sense for a minute. That's always a good thing to do, right? Just let's have a little common sense. He says, guys, you're giving props to the rich and you're poo-pooing the poor, and it's the rich and the wealthy who are treating you poorly. They're defrauding you. They're cheating you. They're withholding your wages. They're the ones dragging you into court. Maybe another argument, again, for this referring to a court setting. These are the people who, as a rule, the rich and wealthy in your culture, they're blaspheming God. God has called us to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, and they're only rich in a worldly way. Why in the world is your first impulse to defer and prefer these people? Are you not beneficiaries of greater riches? Why are you turning to these people? Why are they getting preferential treatment? So Jesus reframes how we regard others because of who he is. Uh, We consider the glory of Jesus. Jesus reframes how we regard others because of what he's done. We consider the grace of the gospel. Finally, Jesus reframes how we regard others because of what he calls us to do. So consider now this third and final point. Consider what Jesus calls us to do. Consider the golden rule. Look there with me, James 2, 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we look to Jesus, we look to the gospel, and now here James says, look to the law particularly what sometimes is called the golden rule. Love God, that's the greatest commandment, and the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. James calls it the royal law, but I needed another G. So we're going to look to the golden rule, okay? It could be, it could be, and I think this is a good assumption, uh, that these early believers didn't think that this was a big deal at all. They weren't connecting this with what Jesus had called them to do. They didn't think favoritism and discrimination was a big deal. It ran with the grain of their cultural milieu. And it probably seemed necessary as they tried uh, to get by as this minority in the diaspora scattered among the nations. They're trying to live in this culture that's hostile to their faith. I think we're increasingly faced with dilemmas like that, aren't we? When we think this thing or that thing that we do is just the way things are. It's just the way you do things. It's easy to excuse our sin. This is just the way it has to be. There are probably some looking at this situation and thinking, who can help me in the circumstances I'm living in? Who can reciprocate uh, the honor and respect that I show them? Definitely not this poor widow over here, uh, but hey, this wealthy landowner might actually be able to help. He might be an asset. I think that's sort of what's going on. Taking the letter as a whole, uh, remembering how James speaks later in the letter about these rich landowners, these uh, crooked employers, I think this is what's happening. They're, they're trying to curry favor in these difficult circumstances. Maybe it just has to be this way. James says, no. No. It may seem like the way it is, but that's not what we're called to do. 
It might seem like a small thing to give preference and deference to those with political clout, to those who could provide us with economic advantage, to those uh, with whom it seems advantageous uh, to associate. Just forget the poor. What help are they going to be? This is no small thing. This is no small thing. It's a transgression of the law of God. It's devoid of mercy, and it's at odds with our calling as Christians. Pure and undefiled religion. Well, we're going to hear this over and over again, is what? It's to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Favoritism and deference or preferring those who can help us out. This pragmatism is really self-worship. We're no longer worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves. It puts us on the throne. And instead of taking the towel and the basin and going to those who need us, washing feet like our Savior, it steps over those in need as we look for those who can help us. James says it makes you a lawbreaker. It makes you guilty of all of it. James says it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. You can't just keep the law in some ways and ignore the law in other ways. Whoever becomes guilty, whoever fails to keep the whole law, uh, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. So it's all or nothing. You miss the mark in one way, you miss the boat entirely. There is no in-between. We need a faithful friend like James who is going to come to us and say, hey, listen, this is where you're out of stuff. This is where you're missing it. This is where you're not living pure and undefiled religion. What does it mean then, though? Uh, Look with me at verse 12. What does it mean, uh, if you're like me at this point, you really need some good news. So what does it mean when he says in verses 12 and 13, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty? For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, I think here we get to some good news. Uh, He's pressed home the fact that we all fail. um, And if we fail at one point, it's a catastrophic failure. There's no recovery. If you fail at one point, you have failed to keep the whole law. But again, James in his letter is never telling us, shape up or you're not saved. Shape up or you never will be saved. That's not, that's not the message of James. He started his argument with who Jesus is and the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not his point. He's moved on to see what Jesus has done in the gospel, and now he's laying out this path of obedience for Christians. And he defines the law in a very encouraging way. I think we should take a lot of encouragement from this. He calls it the law of liberty. Yes, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment for the one who by humble faith looks to Jesus and receives the law from his hand, receives the law from his Redeemer. Those of us who have been redeemed by Christ through humble faith, receiving his grace, we're not standing at the foot of Sinai with its thunder and dread and gloom. That is no longer what the law is for you, Christian. You receive it as the law of liberty. The law is freedom you. The law is the good life held out to us by the one who gave his life to rescue us for our law breaking. And now he says, this is the life of freedom. Follow it. Remember who you are brought forth by the word of truth. This is the way to live. So remember who you are and obey the golden rule. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Obey not to be redeemed, but because you've been redeemed. The one who shows no mercy, the one who continues down that road, he reveals by his way of life that he's never 
been taken from the foot of Sinai into the presence of Christ in Zion. He has never been rescued. Only judgment without mercy for that person. I don't want to be that person. I don't want you to be that person. Run to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and receive the law from his hand as the law of liberty. His mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the mercy of Jesus for his own. It's this final reminder here of full hope. It's not that our mercy can outweigh the judgment. It's the mercy of Jesus towards those who deserve judgment and making it a life of freedom for us. So we don't have to fear the judgment when we live our lives marked by the gospel, marked by this mercy because it reveals that we have received gospel mercy. It's the only way we could ever live this way because left to ourselves, that is not natural. That is a supernatural miracle that God has done in our hearts through the Holy Spirit as he's bringing forth the fruit of repentance, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we are learning to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the mercy we show to those in need to the ones the world despises, the ones who uh, maybe we once despised in our our old paradigms because we hadn't understood Jesus yet. The gospel hadn't gripped our hearts. Uh, This mercy flows through us because of the honorable name by which we've been called. It's not about golden rings and fine clothes and worldly prestige or any other notion of greatness and honor according to worldly wisdom. It's not about our old paradigms of honor and shame. No, it's about the honorable name that we've been given by Jesus. Holding out that rich message of honor uh, that only he can give, we call everyone to receive that name. We call everyone to know what it is to have that name put on them. Everyone that God has put in our lives to serve in mercy and love. His mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to see the glory of Jesus and the grace of the gospel that leads us to follow uh, your royal law, the law of liberty, the law in the hand of Christ, because you've given us a name that makes earthly riches and status and honor pale in comparison. Help us to replace our old paradigms with a gospel outlook and understanding about what's really important and what we're really to be all about as we live for you and love our neighbor looking to the mercy of Jesus that triumphs over judgment. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.